This is a HeadGum Podcast. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Good morning, Halflings, and welcome back to another class at Halfling U. As always, I am your headmistress and cultural studies professor, Dr. Jones. Back with me again today are... Yo, uh, what up? It's me. Captain of the football team. I, I can't even remember if this is the same accent I had before. But it's me. I'm Jeremy. I'm here to beat up some more nerds and get some more class credit, you dinguses. Now, now, now. No beating up each other in this class. I ain't no nerd. You save that for the field. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll invite the nerds to the game and then charge into the stands and beat them up there. Not my purview. <laughs> Out of sight, out of mind, they teach! Mmm, it's character building or something, right? Um, they'll get experience. Anyway, <laughs> we also have... Uh, hello, I am uh, Navar, your resident nerd. I forgot what title I gave myself last time, um, but it was probably something like president of the debate team or something. Yeah, you were an AV club. Something mm -hmm. AV club. Hey, Navar, yeah. <laughs> you want to come to the basket? Do you want to come to the football game? Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually Plans practice motion, to baby. be a wide receiver uh, in my off time, so I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I'll be all I, right. I, I recommend um, just, you know, preparing for that. Oh, I'll be prepared. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, um, nerd version of Navar is still still jacked and athletic. Oh, so no. Nerdy about gym stuff. <laughs> Nerds can lift, too. CC B. Dave Walters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, today in class, we have a topic near and dear to my heart, Afrofuturism. So, let's start <coughs> by throwing it out to these two. What does, what do you think the word Afrofuturism means? What do you consider to be Afrofuturism? I can go first because I have lots of questions. Um, so, what I thought that Afrofuturism meant and I guess still think is uh, basically a reimagining of the world <clears throat> from the perspective of the uh, of black people. Um, and I assumed personally that there would be a lot more like hope, a lot less oppression. A lot <laughs> and I'm saying all these words and it's going to make sense as the conversation goes on because uh, Joan had us read something specifically that made me reconsider all of my uh notions but yeah so i just that would like if i were to like write afrofuturism that would be it would be a lot of like hope a lot of um uh futuristic stuff built in the perspective from black people um and and no or very little oppression racism all the bad stuff yeah uh i would say probably uh the simplest way to the point that it's a little bit reductive uh, to define it would be black sci-fi. Uh, I think that it pretty much inherently has to <laughs> yeah. be sci-fi adjacent. And 
instead of your typical science fiction, which will usually look at how science affects society and exposes things about humans, uh, I think Afrofuturism usually has it has whatever the sci the the science is accomplishing pertains specifically to black people. Often, like some element of real life black history, um, I'm thinking of like Sun Ra, for example, uh, where like a lot of his music is very uh, and his philosophy was like very aspirational, like through music, we are going to mm-hmm. elevate ourselves to a higher state of being. The And of course, he's coming out with a lot of this stuff in the 1960s. There's like the idea of rising above our circumstances towards a brighter future. And in general, I tend to think of Afrofuturism as being a more hopeful genre of sci-fi uh and more aspirational mm-hmm. uh because i think there usually is an element of the futurism really does fit like i really do think there is an element of like, looking towards the future not just like blade runner yeah. or actually not even blade runner looking at something like um war of the worlds like a foundational work in sci-fi which is not the future it's set in the present uh i think afrofuturism really does look towards mm-hmm. the future and say with these things or let's I, we, we're either moving in that direction or let's imagine a future in which things have moved in that direction or or have developed and can then start to move in a more hopeful direction that's usually how i think of afrofuturism cool so um we're definitely going to touch on a lot of those elements of those definitions um but i will start by going to where the term originated so um the the term Afrofuturism was coined by a man named Mark Derry, who, it is worth noting, is a white man. I was going to say, based um, on that name. And <laughs> I was like, yeah. Derry? Mark, uh, Mark Derry. Yeah. yeah. I'm. His middle name is last oh, name Washington. All scrambled up. <laughs> uh, not quite, or at least not that I know of. So Mark Derry coined the term in circa 92 or 93, and um, he was writing about what he identified as a new trend uh, of folks writing black science fiction. Um, And specifically, he denoted it as being black people writing about technology and the future. And um, that's a very broad and at the same time oddly specific definition in that it's Black people, technology, future, um, which doesn't necessarily capture most of Afrofuturism. Um, so I'm looking here specifically, and we're going to be specifically discussing uh, feminist Afrofuturism and or intersectional Afrofuturism, because as you'll find, most feminist Afrofuturism is inherently intersectional. Um, but... It wasn't until a little bit later that we started having people like Alondra Nelson and Itasha Womack uh, giving a definition from a black female perspective. There have been a lot of additional complications to the definition in the last, what is that, like 30 years? Um, So we can talk about Afrofuturism versus African futurism versus African space futurism, as well as Afro-fantasy, African jujuism, there are a lot of different proposed subfields. And personally, I don't think all of them are completely necessary, but uh, 
we can get into that. To go back to who I consider to be the mother of Afrofuturism itself, um, without necessarily having defined herself as an Afrofuturist, uh, that would be Octavia Butler. So she is well known for, excuse me, the books, uh, The Parable of the Sower, uh, Kindred, which is about to be either a series or a film, I believe also her series, um, the Lilith's Brood, which starts with the novel Dawn, is about to be made into a f- possibly also a series by, and that one I believe is Ava DuVernay is directing and producing that one. Um, but here is a interesting, if not fun, quote uh, from Modern Masters of Science Fiction, Octavia Butler, uh, by Jerry Canavan. An editor once said to Butler, Blacks should not be included in science fiction stories because they changed the character of the stories. You could use an alien instead and get rid of all this messiness and all those people that we don't want to deal with. What was that? That was a direct quote. (laughs) Oh my God. That was was Butler submitting a piece to an editor, and that was what the editor said in response. When was this? Uh, Do we know what year this was? (laughs) She... Was born in 47, started writing as a child, made her first submission when she was 13. So this would have been in the 50s or 60s. I believe. Possibly even later, because... No, because 50s, 60s... Yeah, it would have been 60s or 70s, actually. Mm. Um, But yes, and again... I was imagining like 2005... It's like, oh, oh no, 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 no. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Octavia Butler passed in the early aughts, I believe, from a heart attack, sadly, before finishing her Parable series. Um, she passed in 2006. So, I thankfully, thanks to this brief pause in time that none of you will have experienced, uh, I have found the information I was looking for. So, though the surge in popularity of Afrofuturism recently is certainly worth celebrating, we must not neglect two fundamental truths of Afrofuturism. It is not new, and it is not only a genre for storytelling, it is an ontology of Black survival. So, an ontology is a way of being. Uh, So... While the term Afrofuturism was coined in the early 90s through an interview with Mark Derry, Samuel Delaney, Greg Tate, and Trisha Rose, noticeably absent from the conversation was Octavia Butler, a woman that many, including me, consider to be the mother of Afrofuturism. In their introduction to Afrofuturism 2.0, The Rise of Astro-Blackness, Rinaldo Anderson and Charles Jones cite the conversation and Derry's definition of Afrofuturism. And that is, quote, Speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture, and, more generally, African-American signification that appropriates images of technology and a prosthetically enhanced future. So, as we started to get into, there's a few problems with this definition. Uh, Firstly, it's fully situated within Western academic discursive language that is not particularly accessible to the vast majority of Black people in the diaspora. Uh, The author mentions the historical past, the 
quote-unquote, the black artistic matrix and practice of what we call Afrofuturism can be traced back over a hundred years, but doesn't do anything to surface that history or contextualize their work within it. Other definitions, convoluted, oddly specific, tied to the 20th century, for example, and ahistorical appear on subsequent pages, only one of which is offered by a woman, Alondra Nelson, who puts it more simply. Afrofuturism can be broadly defined as African-American voices with other stories to tell about culture, technology, and things to come. Nelson's definition is preferable uh, for several reasons, if not just her femininity, which is relevant but not authoritatively sufficient. She simplifies the concept to its minimal constitutive elephant. Ele- elephants? <laughs> I mean, elephants are feminist Afrofuturists. Afrofuturist. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, elephants <laughs> must be part of Afrofuturism, and they are all feminists. I mean, they are the personification of African women wisdom. So just throwing that out there. African-American voices, quote-unquote, other stories, and things to come. Though these aspects on their own don't fully qualify a work to be considered Afrofuturist, certainly a piece could not be considered to fit the description without them. Rather than decide on a definition and later decide which works should be included and excluded, I think it's more prudent to take what some would call a grounded theory approach. Grounded theory uh, in academic circles is the idea of looking over the evidence material first and deductively reasoning what it tells us about the theory rather than using a pre-existing theory and trying to de- trying to determine how it maps onto the material so i reference grounded theory because in this case the definition arises from the literature and the work but one might also liken the process to factor analysis if you prefer quantitative data and that the goal is to see what elements hang together, so to speak. Uh, factor analysis is a way of quantifying data and then using um, algorithmic and statistical manipulation to see um, which things appear closest together um, and how they tend to group with each other. Uh, maybe in the future we'll do an episode about a factor analysis that I worked on. But, um, as Butler herself put it, American speculative fiction up to her had been, quote, nearly all white, just as it's been nearly all male. Um, We already discussed the uh, quote from the editor, which is all kinds of problematic. Um, But Canavan also continued, After Butler, this level of arrogant dismissal would be almost unthinkable in science fiction. Her novels, like those of Delaney, Ursula K. Le Guin, etc., and other titans of the field with whom she is commonly paired, are all corrections of that fundamental error, the recovery of the nightmare of history, whose memory has been erased from the everyday life of the privileged. Butler's creative and critical work demonstrates that science fiction was never really a straight white male genre, despite its pretensions to the contrary. Blackness, womanhood, poverty, disability, and queerness were always there under the surface, the genre's hidden truth. The future never belonged to just one tiny fraction of the human race. So I would like to take a little bit of a pause here and kind of see how that reshapes your guys' understandings of uh, what Afrofuturism means. And then I will go into my grounded theory uh definitions 
Um, I mean, I think it like definitely makes it broader in what it encompasses. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think like, it just seems, I, I just, I, I feel like I was really thrown off by, so to give you some context, some more context. Um, I think when you originally told us about the book, uh, I think you talked about the name of it. And so I read the actual, I started to read the first short story oh, okay. in it, which is named after the book. And then I was like, well, this like seems really sad. And <laughs> then you were like, no, read this one. And then that one. And I was like, okay, this is also kind of sad. Um, and so, <laughs> and so I was, uh, I think that's like, it's that part of it has thrown me off because yes, they did include futuristic elements, um, which I think is Great, but also I just didn't. I don't know. Like my expectation m made the experience. Let different. me walk back a little. What Afrofuturist any media of any genre uh, or medium mm -hmm. have you experienced before this? I know that we've collectively talked about Black Panther. Um, yeah, and have you read Black Panther comics uh, as well? Um, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Very little. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Other than that. I think, yeah. I mean, I uh, I have been aware of Parable of a Sawyer for a, my, a long mm -hmm. time. Um, but I haven't yet read it. But I'm, like, familiar with what it's okay. about. Um, and I guess because it was never framed to me as Afrofuturism, I never considered it that way. I just assumed, I just thought of it as, like, sci-fi that was written by a black mm -hmm. woman, so. Which, according to some definitions of Afrofuturism, absolutely makes it Afrofuturist. Uh, yeah. Yeah, which I'm, I think it's just like, so for me, this the experience of Afrofuturism was a very, like, what does the words evoke? Mm -hmm. And uh, what it evoked and what I received were two different things in a, in a few gotcha. ways. Mm. Yeah. What would you say it evoked? Like I said, a, a hope. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like a, a reimagining of of black life in a in a way that didn't have to deal with all the stuff that we're doing mm -hmm. with now. Gotcha. Um, Which I mean, there's nothing wrong with telling a story about those elements. Like I fully think that that's fine. I just I just w wouldn't have considered those things Afrofuturism with my narrow understanding of what the words meant in the full which context. is an understandable kind of ambiguity in the sense that uh there are so many different definitions that have been some that have been asserted by white folks that are maybe less are are sort of an outsider's look in and others that are you know complicated by different pieces um so there's also, well, Jeremy, let me get your input here too. Um, I would say the main difference between what you have just read to us and what I had already thought is the emphasis on specifically black women. Because when I think of science fiction, um, with a few exceptions, the vast majority of the people that I think of are men. Like, I would think, mm -hmm. sure, Frankenstein, uh, arguably the birth of the whole dang genre, uh, written by mm -hmm. a woman. Um, um, oh, Margaret Atwood, 
uh right because yes. she wrote the handmaid's tale uh that mm-hmm. that's one that i would think of i mer- mentioned uh Le Guin. exactly yeah Ur- ursula k leguin uh a f- maybe a few mm-hmm. others but overwhelmingly you get your hg wells uh and your mm-hmm. isaac asimov's and uh oh mm-hmm. what was his name uh yeah orson, orson scott, scott <laughs> ralph ellison uh i was thinking of uh the yeah, does he write science fi- science? Yeah, Orson fi- Scott, Orson Scott mm-hmm. Card wrote uh, sci-fi, Ender's Game. Um, I was just thinking because yeah. of his yeah, yeah. reputation, what he has done to his own reputation. Uh, I was thinking yeah. of uh, the author of mm-hmm. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Philip K. Dick. That was it. Uh, yes. And a bunch of others, yes, Ray, yes. Ray Radbury, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. usually who I think of. And then when I think of Afrofuturism, I tend to think of mostly music, actually. Yes. Uh, I, think of, I think of Sun Ra. I think of a little mm-hmm. bit of Andre 3000, especially around the yes. time they started doing like AT Aliens uh Aquemini mm-hmm. when he start like he starts specifically talking about how on um, the opening track of of Aquemini I think how he wants to he would rather talk about more futuristic uh aspirational mm-hmm. things rather than just like gangster rap for example which that came yeah. out in the mid to late 90s which is you know the heyday of gangster rap in a lot of ways so also uh big prominent uh afrofuturist music uh mm-hmm. George uh Clinton Parliament and Funkadelic? Yes. Yeah. And the Parliament Funkadelic, yes. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And uh, those are big ones, too. And obviously, Janelle Monae got her start in music, and we're going to talk about her a little bit more Mm -hmm. um, in a minute. But uh, so I will say that the... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say the emphasis on black femininity uh, and feminism as well uh, was, Mm -hmm. uh, was something that I hadn't really considered as much. So I will say that is an intervention that I am specifically making. So there, in general, I think if you were to talk to people about Afrofuturism um, outside of this conversation, you would probably hear a lot of those things that you've just said. Um, And certainly the most well-known Afrofuturist piece out there, I believe, is the Black Panther 2018 film. Mm -hmm. Um, Although it is a fairly light uh it's not hard hard afrofuturism it's not i was gonna ask you too yeah so i follow um and i I apologize if i get her name pronounced incorrectly but netty yes um and she constantly is correcting people about African futurism versus Afrofuturism. A great segue in, and so, into what we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say, I wonder about Wakanda in that sense, because it's literally centered in Africa. So she specifically argues that Black Panther is Afrofuturism and that her work is African futurism. And she, mm. her use of African futurism is one word. So when I mentioned briefly that there's African space futurism, not, not space as in the place, but as in like a space in the sentence. Um, yeah. But space, space is the place. Is the place. <laughs> space is the place. Um, but uh, her, she has a blog post. I highly recommend anybody checking this, read it. I'm not going to go digging through my notes again to find where I broke it down because we don't need to take another pause. But, um, she is adamant that 
African futurism is different from Afrofuturism in that it centers the continent and it does not focus as much on Western cultures. And she's critical of the fact that Afrofuturism uh, is so heavily focused on the Americas. Um, I take some issues with it. Uh, if you go into her post, there are some details. She argues um, from a perspective, so both Anetti Okorafor and I are what she calls Niger-American, Nigerian-Americans. Um, I believe she may have been born in Nigeria. I was born here, but I do have Nigerian citizenship and I have been there a few times. I am not as connected to my Nigerian cultural roots as she is, um, but I would argue that a main reason that Afrofuturism features the Americas pretty heavily is because a huge portion of the diaspora is in the Americas. Um, and a lot of Afrofuturist literature comes out of African-American literature. Therefore, it makes sense that um, that would be a major component of Afrofuturism. I feel personally that while Okorafor wants to assert that it is a separate genre from Afrofuturism, I would say that it is a subgenre, and that you could mm. argue that it would be within Afrofuturism is contained American Afrofuturism, Caribbean Afrofuturism, Canadian Afrofuturism. But again, because it's um, about a diasporic group, these often overlap. Uh, Nalo Hopkinson writes about Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean people mostly in Canada. So in that sense, you're combining the continent with the Caribbeans and with Canada. And obviously there's a lot of migration to trace in these stories and things like that. Um, Another woman, what's her name? I have it written down, I know. Uh, Pamela Fatsimo Sundstrom has an article in uh, Climate Fictions called Afro-Mythology and African Space Futurism, The Politics of Imagining and Methodologies for Contemporary Creative Research Practices. And in that one, she engages with the definition of African space futurism that is different than uh, Okorafor's, but ultimately I believe that Afrofuturism is more complicated than any of these um, thus far proposed definitions, and at the same time less complicated because I as I said before, I draw my definition from grounded theory. So, um, circa late 2016, early 2017, I, as I have mentioned before, was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, and I couldn't keep up with the demands of my doctoral program in addition to being a teaching assistant, so I had to withdraw from everything. Um, and I discovered at the same time the early signs of a severe case of ADHD that I had been masking up until that point, but no longer could. So I was often so fatigued and distracted that I could not read more than a paragraph uh, without falling asleep or rereading it several times. And I switched to audiobooks. Um, 
So in that vein, I also needed to slowly get back on the horse, so to speak. So I made an effort to do uh, independent readings. And the two courses that I decided to take were Black Voices, which was an attempt for me to catch up on uh, canonical African-American texts that hadn't been taught to me previously. And the second one was, of course, Afrofuturism. And uh, my selection of texts was heavily influenced by what I could find on either Audible or Libby, which is a library uh, app that allows you to download audiobooks similarly to Audible, but it's free. Um, so around 2016, that's, around that same time is when the Black Panther film was announced to be in development. Um, I was ecstatic. Uh, I had also noticed recently that a lot of uh, African-American academic figures were writing for Black Panther comics, including Roxanne Gay and Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, I believe since then, and Nettie Okorafor has also written for uh, Black Panther. Um, and once I started reading this stuff, I was flabbergasted that I hadn't encountered it earlier. Atasha Womack has a quote in her book on Afrofuturism uh, saying, quote, For me, it was the sort of thing where as soon as I heard the term, I was really excited about the term Afrofuturism, and I was also frustrated because I knew so many people who were Afrofuturists and had never heard this term. Same. Uh, I actually got a chance to meet and converse with Atasha Womack not too long ago, and it was a delightful conversation, and I very much... Uh, we very much connected on that aspect. Um, so it's for a lot of these reasons, I identify Afrofuturism and generally I refer to Afrofuturism as simply black speculative stories. And I see it as vital for a black girl to see herself represented as powerful, capable, noble, respected, graceful, elegant, or any other adjective with which she might positively identify is not only life-changing, but the steadfast mission of numerous schools and nonprofit organizations. If this project does nothing but to bring attention to the wealth of black feminist speculative fiction available to young black girls, then I will deem it a success. That said, black speculative stories is a fairly broad definition of a genre whose boundaries are vague and constantly in flux. Through my deep dive in Afrofuturism that first semester after Fibro, I was able to binge dozens of Afrofuturist novels, films, and music, including the entire oeuvres of Octavia Butler, Janelle Monet, and works by Annette Okorafor, uh, I'm going to do my best to say this one, uh, N.K. Jemison, uh, Nalo Hopkinson, Tomi Adeyemi, um, You'll be familiar with that one, Jeremy, as uh, one of Unadi's favorites, uh, Children of Blood and Bone, oh, is by Tomi okay. Adeyemi. Um, and I also consider Beyonce to be an Afrofuturist. Um, I will provide a complete list of everything I read and studied for this um, in an appendix in my dissertation, and I will make that available um, somehow on in link to this podcast. But... Uh, 
continuing to lecture, bear with me guys, thanks in large part to 2018's enormously successful Black Panther, Afrofuturism has been revitalized in the public consciousness as a new and exciting genre. The truth is that it may only be considered new from the perspective of academics, to whom a 70-year-old cultural trend is only just escaping infancy, in comparison to some of the more venerable traditions like postmodernism, restoration drama, or medieval passion plays. Nonetheless, the term Afrofuturism, while it can be resized to fit material going back at least to the 50s and 60s in the United States, was only co coined in 93, as we discussed. But uh, those definitions we found all to be lacking in some degree. So based on my uh, deep dive, grounded theory readings of all of these there were five elements that I pulled out as common in almost all Afrofuturist works. And I'm definitely going to find them in 30 seconds or less. I promise. All right. You, uh, so this doesn't need to be in the episode, so cut this, things. Dan. But I was going to say, uh, you, you keep mentioning Natasha Womack, and that reminds me of Bobby Womack, who at this point is dead, but I believe was a soul and funk singer, among other things. And I, huh. ma I mainly know him because he was featured in two of the best tracks from Gorilla's album, uh, Plastic uh. Beach, from 2010. Uh both of which have kind of sci-fi-ish vibes, and one of which I would almost say sounds like it could fit in with like an Afrofuturist type work, even though obviously Damon Albarn is white, and probably a lot of the other musicians that they were playing with were white. Well, you should actually keep that in, Daniel, because I'm gonna and address it in the next thing that Ooh. I talk about. So, um, there are five themes that I pulled out. One uh, is history. It is an almost historiographic. So historiographic refers to the practice of doing history in a way that reclaims lost perspectives, uh, reinvestigates uh, the sort of great person version of history, reinvestigates the, you know, winners write the history sort of perspective and um, some good books in that vein would be, um, especially pertinent to this podcast, uh, it's called A Black Women's History of the United States. Um, there's also a book by Howard Zinn called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Both of those are excellent and focus on Black women's and Indigenous people's histories um, that don't get told in the main narrative of history. So that's what historiography is. In a sense, both um, in the meta-narrative in terms of what people are looking at, especially with Octavia Butler's Kindred, you have the premise is of a woman who is transported back in time uh, to the position of her ancestor and is in the situation of having to protect the person who enslaved her ancestor because the person that enslaved her ancestor is also her ancestor um, uh, through sexual assault. And so she's in this unique position of both in order to preserve her own future, she has to preserve the future of a person who is often quite despicable to her. Um, but in addition to that, 
there are often narratives in Afrofuturism of the protagonist uh, who must unearth a version of events that has been obfuscated by traditional historical methods, sometimes intentionally and often for the benefit of the ruling class. This is especially relevant in the sense of connecting the mysteries of the past to the problems of the present and the solutions of the future. Often this retrospective involves a new understanding of the ways personal family history and social history interact to produce significant life events. So um, we read together, well, independently together, um, shout out to Steven Universe Future, uh, that a, actually that's from the movie, shout out to Steven Universe, the movie. Um, We read a short story out of Janelle Monae's recent collection of short stories set in the world of Dirty Computer. Um, And the story we read is called Save Changes. And in the beginning of the story, we know that the protagonist has a mother and a sister that she lives with. And the mother is um, mentally incapacitated. She is doing strange things like cooking funny enough, cooking with laundry detergent on the stove. And yeah, we're not going to talk about the recent flux of people cooking chicken with laundry detergent. That's weird. Uh, it's a thing. It, it It's a thing on social media. It's not relevant. It's just weird. Um, in this case, it is clearly meant to be absurd. Um, and you also know that she is being constantly monitored by the sort of shady society, um, New Dawn. And that was also featured in the emotion picture that we watched, um, which is a, like a extended music video that is a companion to the Dirty Computer album from 2018. And of course, like I said, both the book and the album are set in the same universe. Um, there is actually a story within that book that is almost directly, um, could be a scene in between two parts of the uh, the um, emotion picture. Um, so to apply the idea of historiography or history to save changes, and uh, we can think about the ways in which our protagonist, who I believe her name is Savannah or Amber, Amber or something, Amber, yeah, Amber yeah. Um, has to sort of figure out the history of what's been going on with her mother and father. Um, There's a significant object from her father's past that has been given to her, um, and she needs to understand what the significance of that object is and how it plays into um, her own personal family history before she can properly use it to address the plot. Um, We're probably going to get into spoilers for this, but just, you know, heads up. But um, the item that I am discussing is a amulet that she has received from her father that allows the user, the firstborn child, uh, to jump back in time a certain amount, but it can only be used once and you don't know exactly what the sort of consequences are going to be and, and how much time you're going to have and that kind of thing. So... Um, in other books, in Midnight Robber uh, by Nalo Hopkinson, uh, the protagonist has to 
learn about her family history as well and uh, use that to frame her present, understand the kind of person that her father was um, in conflict to her sort of disillusionment with him being this amazing figure that often young kids think of their fathers as. Um, the second theme that I noticed uh, is generational trauma. So typically, examining the past includes some component of trauma experienced by the protagonist's elders and inherited in new forms by their descendants. Often, the protagonist becomes disillusioned and resentful toward their mentors in spite of their love for the people who raised them. She must learn to forgive her mentors, usually through a more sophisticated understanding of the past, as mentioned in the historiography section. So... In Children of Blood and Bone, uh, this looks like uh, the protagonist discovering that certain secrets have been kept from her her whole life, that um, her magic has been entangled with um, generations of systemic oppression, that uh, her mentor could have given her more information but withheld it in an attempt to protect her and only after she discovers it can she reconcile both her mentor's love for her and her lack of agency without the information that was so necessary for her to have. Um, I think in Save Changes, maybe one of you guys could point to a way that generational trauma surfaces in that story. Uh, I mean, the amulet is mm -hmm. a way, um, something that their father goes through, and then that responsibility of like knowing the right moment to deal with this is is passed down to amber mm -hmm. uh, through the artifact for sure i was i was gonna say something similar and actually parallel one thing that it reminded me of is a phenomenon that i've witnessed in multiple times across several different areas uh which is to say uh, most prominently perhaps when i was at drama school my the my particular drama school course placed a lot of emphasis on the history of marginalized groups so there was a mm. lot of discussion of feminist theory as well as uh issues of race and racism and the history of racism that is often glossed over in the united kingdom mm -hmm. uh and i noticed that it tended to have a very a profound effect on the women in the class and also on the black people in the class. A lot of a lot of the women really hadn't been exposed to much in the way of feminist ideals before. So mm. I think they it was like them becoming aware of essentially a heritage that they had that they didn't know. And some of them, there was often like a real sense of like anger for a lot of mm. them. Uh, I think for some of them, it was like, yeah, I'm not interested. Some of them were like, whoa, but like it was, it was really interesting mm. to see. And it was the same for some of the black people. Um, I think the black people were usually more aware um, but there was mm -hmm. still like a similar response of like, it seems as though they've been handed something and they didn't understand the full scope of what had been passed down to them. Uh, and I think that's probably similar to the experience that a lot of black parents have trying to tell their children like, hey, I know that you're happy being you, but uh, turns out the world is not great uh, for people who look like you, unfortunately. Uh, and here are some here are some elements and areas in which the world has historically not been great and continues to not mm. be great. Uh, talk. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, in my case, at least it was a series of talks. I can't I can't speak for either of you, but it's like, well, this is the first step. And then we have to continue talking about this. And it's mm. like, oh, yes, uh, you're wondering why none of the, the girls that are around you show interest in you. It may have something to do with the fact that they're white. Uh, and it's like, oh, OK. And then, like, as soon as you meet black girls, it's like, oh, dang. Yeah, no, that that part well, was part of it because <laughs> all the black girls are like, oh, I, I see you as a romantic prospect. Um. Uh, but like, yeah, it's like that whole yeah. thing. It's like you it's the idea of being ha your parents literally passing down uh, a trauma to you saying, hey, this is part of your heritage that you have to look at and reconcile with and learn how to navigate. And it was like it was a strong parallel there for me. Yeah, that's a good example of like a direct sort of. I have to tell you about this trauma that I face because you're going to face it, too. Um, I think there's also sort of the transference of generational trauma in that uh even when so first of all i never got the talk because my mom grew up in nigeria my mom had to be taught about racism from her white friends when she got here uh to the americas that is um she also was a fairly high status her her father was a crucial member of the government of Nigeria for most of her life. So she was a very high status person. Um, mm. She might not have individually been recognized by people, but she had a driver who taught her how to drive. She had people in her home working for her as like staff and things like that. Like they had a, I'm pretty sure they had a cook and cleaning mm. people and things like that, um, which is more common in Nigeria than uh, one might think um, if you live in the Americas or the United Kingdom. Um, was she kind of insulated but, from the colonialist history of, of what had occurred to the nation? I don't know. She was two years old when Nigeria got its independence. Mm -hmm. So she would have been living through those early years. And my um, aunt, who was a little older than her, was the firstborn, would have been also living through that. Um, the The other thing about, like, not getting the talk is I, my mother, uh, through whatever cultural pressures were around at the time, became very assimilationist. She didn't really talk about Nigerian culture while I was growing up. Um, most of the stuff I've learned about Nigerian culture was either from visiting, uh, interacting with my extended family, or me directly asking her uh, questions. Um, <laughs> although I do remember in school, people would ask me if my mother spoke Nigerian. And just for the record, there's no such language as Nigerian. Uh, the official language of Nigeria is English. And uh, there are lots of different ethnic groups with different languages, like the Igbo, the Yoruba, and the Hausa are the three largest groups in Nigeria. Um, my family is Hausa Fulani. So Fulani are a nomadic ethnic group that cover almost all of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, mostly West Africa. Um, but yeah, so there's, I think it's the, what's worth pointing out in all of that is that whether or not you are a descendant of an enslaved person, um, there is generational trauma involved with both colonization and enslavement. Um, 
this is something that we would probably also have a lot in common with our indigenous uh, brothers and sisters, which is one of the ways in which uh, Afrofuturism is often inherently intersectional because the, th the things that we're telling stories about, uh, the position especially of the black woman in the Americas, uh, is such that it often overlaps and by... Uh, is that coming from my... I don't know. I think so. Sorry. Um, the. <laughs> I think it was a dog scratching that year. Okay. Uh, that's what it sounded like to me. The. Uh, that's the definition of Afrofuturism. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, the. Um, shit. What was I saying, guys? Now I've lost talking two. About <laughs> the history. I was talking about historiography. The you were talking trauma. about how you didn't get yeah. the talk. Yes, because colonization and how yeah, and, and your your mother had assimilated into mm -hmm. uh, American society and mm -hmm. taken a mainly uh, assimilationist approach. And then on you the other about hand, the different ethnic groups in in Nigeria and so forth. Exactly. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I have severe ADHD, as I mentioned earlier. So, and I actually would like to keep this in because I think it's important for people, especially grad students, to hear that um, not everything is perfect all the time, and it's okay to have ADHD and rely on your buddies to help you out. Uh, so, generational trauma can expect can affect anybody in the diaspora. It is one thing that connects us with many of our uh, similarly marginalized or oppressed. Um, communities, including indigenous people and other people of color. Um, so moving on from generational trauma, because we don't want to talk about that all day long. Um, the next thing I pulled out of these stories is community empathy building as a way of forming community. So empathic communities. Um, it's very surface level in uh, Parable of the Sower. Um, we can see it happening in Black Panther uh, as a as T'Challa learns to empathize with his cousin. Uh, he makes the decision to open Wakanda up to the rest of the world and to start a program to give back to the people in his cousin's community that should have been taken care of this whole time. Um, in Save Changes, we can see that to a degree with... Uh, Amber's sister, do you guys remember off the top of your head? You read it more recently than I did. Larry. Larry. Yes. Her sister Larry uh, takes her to a party and you get to know a lot of different characters who may not be the same marginalized identities as our protagonists, but are similarly affected by the policies of the systemic oppressor New Dawn and who also have mm. to be wary about what happens to them. You can also see that to a degree in the emotion picture um, during the song uh, Crazy Classic Life, where there's a big party happening, it's an underground party, and then it get bu gets busted by New Dawn um, officers. Um, or even lyrically, that song. <laughs> like mm -hmm. when it's talking the, the lyrically that song when there's oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. there's all the emphasis on the difference like the the these taboo I guess of of Janelle Monet's character or just herself having some sort of an affair with a guy that I think is intended to be a white guy in the song. Yes. Um there is a narrative Yes, the rap section at the end um I'm just going to read the lyrics because I think they're really important. Uh, handcuffed in a bando, 
white boy in his sandals, police like a Rambo, blow it out, blow it out like a candle, Sambo. Me and you was friends, but to them we the opposite. The same mistake, I'm in jail, you on top of shit. You living life while I'm walking around mopping shit. Tech kid, backpack, now you a college kid. So not only is this a story about two people at a party, one black, one white, who get arrested, um, it also references, I believe, um, there was a news. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Event about a group of black teens who were having a pool party and uh, the cops violently arrested them, uh, including taking a young black woman who was in her bathing suit and slamming her on the cement and handcuffing her and things like that. Um, so, and this is, I think more of a hypothetical, but I, I believe it draws on that. Um, uh, in the album liner notes, um, Monet says it was inspired by the vibranium in Wakanda wild mushroom tea parties in Mexico, and the notion that true freedom also comes from, quote, the right to be wrong, at least occasionally. See Mary Beard's pronouncement in Women in Power. Quote, it is not just that it is more difficult for women to succeed. They get treated much more harshly if they mess up. Think Hillary Clinton and those emails. So the second half, well, yeah, second half of it, um, all I wanted was to break the rules like you. All I wanted was someone to love me too. But no matter where it was, I always stood out. Black Waldo dancing with the thick brows. We was both running naked at the luau. We was both on shrooms, praying face down, waist down. Remember when they told you I was too black for you? And now my black popping like a bra strap on ya. I was kicked out, said I'm too loud. Kicked out, said I'm too proud. But all I really ever felt was stressed out. Kind of like my afro when it's pressed out. So, basically, we get a story about these two kids doing the same stupid shit at a party that any college, high, late high school kid would be doing, but for the black woman, it's the end of her career, and for the white kid, it's nothing. Um, hmm. So, I don't know that that necessarily ties into our empathy community building thing but it does sort of draw on um the differences uh 
in it's promoting how... empathy, I would say, by informing, yeah. like, if a person did not mm-hmm. understand her perspective, she is informing them, like, look, things ain't the same for you and me. This this happens. Yeah. Like, if we're doing the same things, the consequences for me are much more dire than they are for you. And this is my existence and how it differs from yours, even if we are sharing the same spaces right now. Good. I like that. Yeah. I think um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the Netflix show Raising Dion has a really good um, parallel to that. And and also to the discussion of like talking to your kids about race, because if you've never heard of Raising Dion, it's about a little uh, black boy who gets superpowers mm. and he gets in trouble at school because um, this little white kid is being mean to him and he reacts and the teacher doesn't believe that he was defending himself and gets in trouble. And his mom has to sit him down to have the discussion about like, you know, I think cause he's like eight years old or something like that. And like have the discussion of like, okay, like this is, this is what it is. I cried mm, when I watched mm-hmm. it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's that same thing of like th- these two people who, who are perceived differently, who have different levels of privilege or lack of privilege. And, and hopefully pulling in the audience to understand like, this is, this is how you can show empathy because of the situation mm-hmm. that you're aware. Yeah. That, oh, I can only imagine what that would be like to watch. Um, yeah. So good. Especially, I mean, you, Navarre, have children, so it must be incredibly mm-hmm. touching for you. I mean, I don't have any children yet, yeah. and I am assuming, Jeremy, that you do not have any children yet, unless mm. you're keeping a very big secret from everyone. That he knows of. <laughs> Just kidding. Cut that out, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, you'll leave that in right now. Don't if I have some yes. kids out there who are listening yeah. to this, I want them to know. I didn't know. Navarre's <laughs> dropping a bomb here. How he found out, we will never know. Um, so, that I will, I think I'm going to use that to sort of continue to talk about intersectionality, which is uh, the fourth of the five Mm. themes that I'm highlighting. Um, Afrofuturist worlds are often populated by highly diverse groups, often in conflict, sometimes diffuse, and almost always with multiple socially bounded subclasses, at least one of which can be claimed by the protagonist. In some cases, the protagonist is torn between two worlds, that of the oppressed and that of the oppressor. In any case, the protagonist must amass a team of allies not only of their own groups, but almost amongst every marginalized group that has a stake in the outcome. So I think this is really well exemplified in um, N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy in that uh, the main character has to cooperate with other constituencies that don't share her exact same of a form of oppression but um that book is really hard to talk about without spoiling and it's got one of the best twists in modern literature so i'm not going to go too in depth on it because you all should read it but once you do read it um think about how intersectionally intersectionality plays a part in that and it also ties in pretty heavily with the idea of empathy building in that in order to be intersectional and to invite uh intersectional participation, uh, you need to have a certain capacity to empathize for people with different experiences from yours. Um, And not only that, but to 
as we talked about in previous episodes, it's not just the function of feeling what other people feel, but understanding your own emotional responses, understanding how your emotions affect the way that you engage with other people, um, and, you know, uh, yeah, brain stuff, I smart. Talking about it. I agree. Uh, <laughs> you guys would what a day, guys. All right. So um, I think you can also see that, too, in Save Changes, again, at the party uh, where you have a lot of different personalities coming together in order to build this safe space where they can all enjoy themselves, at least for a night. Um, then the final aspect of this that I want to talk about is self-knowledge and narration. In refining their empathic ability to connect with others, the protagonist also learns more about herself and how others perceive her. In many cases, the development of empathy includes the component of self-empathy, i.e. the ability to see oneself as worthy of forgiveness and capable of change. Often, the protagonist faces an identity crisis that can only be solved by looking inward. When the protagonist learns to see their true self, they also become aware that they have the power to obtain their objective. So, um, the thing that immediately pops to my head for this one that I know neither of you have seen is uh, A Court of Fae and Flowers, in which there are a couple different instances in which somebody reveals their true self and that allows them to achieve their objectives. Um, in Save Changes, we might point to the moment at which a amber decides to engage with the amulet um and learn try to learn more about the history of it um when she's questioning why her father didn't use the amulet and then realizes that he in fact did use the amulet and it is because of that that she has her mother at all um and then Shortly after that, she learns that her mother was faking the mental issues in order to deceive the new Dawn Watchers. Um, so, any input on that from you guys in terms of self-knowledge and narration? You can talk about safe changes, you could talk about the album, you could talk about anything. Um, I was going to say one thing that really stood out to me in specifically in regards to the album dirty computer um having listened to i think pretty much pretty much all the stuff janamone has released there may be like a single here or two that i haven't listened to prior to like maybe yoga every song she had released was kind of about a fictional character slash world the uh, uh they were all part of the her metropolis suite uh and uh starting with yoga it seems like her material or her her subject matter took a turn not only to being more um explicitly sexualized uh sexualized not just sexual but like sexualizing her herself but also uh in terms of like talking mm -hmm. about her like Janelle Monet and it feels like even though obviously we have the emotion picture and we have the dirty computer book with all the different short stories that are set in this world the the book or sorry, the album Dirty Computer is very much about Janelle Monet herself. And so songs like Crazy Classic Life, for example, or um, uh, uh, The Way You Make Me Feel, uh, that would be another one. 
these are like th- these are songs about her and her feelings and her understanding herself and her wrestling with understanding herself. And a lot of those songs really kind of explore a similar theme to what was on the Metropolis suite, which is like feeling like rejected from society and so trying to uh, come to terms with the things that make you different and embrace the things that make you different. Um, Cause even the whole idea of like a dirty computer, uh, at least in universe seems to be like the, it's like, it's a horrible thing to be. It's like, you are immediate uh, like pariah. You must be like captured and overwritten. Uh, and it's, you know, the worst possible mm-hmm. thing you can be. And yet, um, she the opening song of the album i think she literally says i'm your dirty computer <laughs> and like mm-hmm. I, I think there's multiple times on the album where she refers to herself as a dirty computer and so like she is ident the whole album kind of is about her and herself and her feelings and it feels like the, about the way that she relates to society uh in, in various a- uh, aspects of society so that's that's how I would yeah. say it relates for me. It's also worth noting that Dirty Computer, the album, came out shortly after her turn in the uh, film Hidden Figures, in which all of the women that do the mathematics for NASA are called computers. Um, so if you think about mm-hmm. the fact that it was a segregated environment in which black women were their own group of computers and white women were their own group of computers. Uh, the dirty computers refers to the black women who were working at NASA at the time, who nonetheless um, were responsible for so many aspects of space travel that, and most of us didn't even know they existed until 2018. So um, without them, John Glenn never would have made it back to earth. So, um, yeah. Uh, and Monet's character played the first black woman to get a degree in engineering, I believe, a graduate degree in engineering. Um, Hmm. the song specifically, uh, let's see. Yes. Dirty computer, walk in line. If you look closer, you'll recognize I'm not that special. I'm broke inside crashing slowly the bugs are in me um searching for someone to fix my life text message caught up in the sky oh if you love me won't you please reply oh can't you see that it's only me your dirty computer uh so yeah it is very explicitly saying that she is the dirty computer in question um she also has in talking about the album has talked about dirty computers as black women in general, but also anyone who is seen by society as being, as having bugs, as being wrong in some way. Um, I, she, if you watch the music video pink, which was in the, um, the extended album, uh, you'll notice the, yes, uh, you'll notice the, uh, pussy pants, which are basically just (laughs) pants that are made to look like vaginas. Uh, But it's worth noting that within that, she has several dancers that are wearing them and a couple of dancers who are not wearing them, which to me very much implies that she is representing transgender people who are women without necessarily having um, anatomy that corresponds to what we typically think of as female. Um, And... 
uh, she goes out of her way to include a lot of those people also within the the book, the memory librarian. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, so I think it's it's worth noting that um, she also immediately before or during when this album was coming out shared a GIF of the character Stevani, who we talked about in our Steven Universe episode, um, because Stevani in the show identifies themselves. Actually, Garnet tells them, you are an experience. And Monet quoted that, um, and it was sort of the first beginning example of her identifying as uh, she-they instead of... um, explicitly being cisgender female um she considers herself around that time is also when she came out as pan and when she came out as um female non-binary or a non-binary woman um she actually has specifically said that her pronoun uh, is free ass motherfucker so before we move on, can I throw out one other thing? That Absolutely. Is, that I, I'm very excited just because I'm a, I'm a huge, huge, huge Beach Boys fan. And so mm. the fact that she has, uh, she brought out Brian Wilson to, oh, yes, I don't know yes. if he wrote the harmonies on that track, but I know that he sang the harmonies on that track. Uh, Brian oh, Wilson, okay. if you're not familiar, was the primary composer and uh, sometimes lead singer of the Beach Boys. Uh, and I think it's really interesting <clears throat> that she had him sing on what is on. I mean, the Beach, the Beach Boys are known for being a very sunny band. Uh, just in terms mm-hmm. of their subject matter and the tone of their music. But uh, I think it's really interesting that she had him singing backup on, and it's not just like he's singing backup. It's like the first, I don't know how many seconds of the song is just her and like 30 Brian Wilsons, uh, like providing <laughs> the entire musical bedrock for the song. And I think it's really interesting that she had him who is known for such bright and sunny music mm-hmm. uh singing on what is such a melancholy introspective track and i would say it shows that she has actually listened to the beach boys because if you listen oh, past the sound most of their songs past like 1966 are real sad uh even i would say mm-hmm. even wouldn't it be nice is actually a pretty sad song uh tonally like the music is very bright and sunny but let's not forget they don't get what they want the whole yeah. song is about how they're not getting what they want. Yeah. And Gotta they can lyrics the versus. Yeah, exactly. That whole album is like that whole entire mm-hmm. album, really bright and sunny music, really just melancholy yearning songs. I mean, one of his, one of their best songs is in my room, I think from like 1964 mm. or five, uh, which is all about how he <laughs> prefers to be alone in his room, sitting by himself. And that's the only place he can really feel like safe and him, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think it's actually a very good choice to throw him on this song, especially as someone who, in his case, has struggled with like mental illness for decades uh, mm. and all sorts of different issues like that. I think it was really interesting. Yeah. Janelle Monet as an artist, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I'm biased because I've deep dived into all her stuff and uh, she's an incredible solo artist, but she's also amazing when she's collaborating um jeremy and i have talked about the song we are young that she did with fun um personally i like the acoustic mm-hmm. version even better than the original uh the we just talked about a feature she did with prince on her you second album 
uh, actually might be her third album. Yeah, giving them what they love on yeah, I mean, second that one. Full you, yeah, you can't find that one on Spotify, but you can find it on YouTube. Um, there's uh, Yoga with Jadena. There's Queen uh, from that same album has uh, yes Erica Badu. Badu that was one of my yeah. favorite songs of hers. Mm-hmm. Um, she She's got Stevie Wonder on Dirty Computer. Just yes, he's not even singing. He just shows up and yeah. like delivers mm-hmm. like a prayer invocation. Yeah, it's uh, I think the song is called Stevie's Dream, actually. Mm-hmm. Or let me see. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm looking at the liner notes. Yes, Stevie's Dream, and there's also a lyric in one of her songs. Oh no, that was a lyric to that was a reference to Marvin Gaye, not to oh a tightrope tightrope. I just remembered tightrope has big. Oh yeah, tightrope has outcast. Yes, exactly. Um, and I feel like Andre 3000 has worked with her before, but I'm not sure. Was he on Tightrope or is he not? He was not, but they okay. should work together because honestly, I think he's even even better fit than Big Boy. Honestly, <laughs> I'm, I'm manifesting this right now. I need, I absolutely, Andre 3000, love him. That would be great. I need a Lizzo and Janelle Monet collab. Like, I need it. Mm. My heart needs it manifesting. Um, also, nope, also nothing. Anyways. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to add to, um, in terms of Janelle Monet, including herself and her journey in that, and then the stuff, the characters that she wrote about, um, I think like one of the big things like in that whole dirty computer era was just like, it really felt like it was very focused on her exploration in sexuality mm. and her exploration in feminism and um and how those two intersected um which was uh cool to see but like it again that was another thing that like really threw me off um and i understand too like she probably wanted to write from the perspective of somebody who felt like they couldn't live mm. this way um because of like that's you know Especially like it's getting better mm-hmm. quotations now. Um, like, I guess, yeah. yeah, better doesn't always mean like exponential. Yeah, it's not always but, a linear um, path. But yeah, it, it, from when it was, yeah, from when it was written. But like, um, yeah, at that time it was still like, you know, these were all new concepts, like, or I say like new in the socially mm-hmm. grand way of like more people understanding at least the concept of like using pronouns. Some people don't understand that pronouns, everybody uses <laughs> pronouns. Um, and that's really funny when people say mm-hmm. shit like that. Um, but yeah. Um, but I think it was just interesting to see, like to have like in the memory librarian um, have this woman who's like a prestigious, uh, who has this prestigious career, but also like is black and still being um, oppressed for yeah. that. And, is uh queer and still being oppressed for that and it's like and having um her meet a trans woman and that woman having been like imprisoned for that yeah. and so like yeah it's it's interesting to see how all this stuff kind of worked its mm-hmm. way through her storytelling yeah. um we haven't really touched on the sort of actually sci-fi ish elements that much and particularly the one mm-hmm. that is most sort of ever present uh, the ever present threat throughout all these stories is that um anybody can be scooped up by new dawn and taken to a facility where they will undergo a quote-unquote treatment um to 
erase their bugs, uh, which involves a gas that uh, puts them into a state where their memories can be accessed and deleted by these workers who, it is worth noting, are white in the um, in the mm-hmm. emotion picture. Um, and the one of these stories, it is possible to recover from this. It is possible to regain those memories. Um, and so a lot of, I would say another thing that is really common in Afrofuturism, um, but wasn't necessarily as ever present as these other five elements, is memory and time. Um, the idea that memories are both vital, but not necessarily a full perspective of a historical event, um, and that memories recontextualize can change your perception of the world in huge ways. And I think that ties in a little bit to the self-narrative, a little bit to the historiography, um, in the senses of, like, like it makes a big difference. Her uh, Amber's memories of her mother are completely recontextualized when she realizes that her father actually did use the amulet to bring her mother back. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that. I think um, you can see that in the Black Panther film with T'Challa looking back over his feelings about his father. Um, once he realizes what happened to Njidaka, which is Killmonger's actual name. Um, so I think we're going to wrap this up in a minute, but I want to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. So, Navar, you talked about how Afrofuturism felt to you like it should be inherently hopeful and that... Mm-hmm. Um, that is a theme that you expected to see and maybe didn't see as much of it as you were hoping for. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think it's worth contrasting Afrofuturism to Afro-pessimism, which is um, sort of a philosophy, I suppose, uh, for lack of a better word, that Ta-Nehisi Coates is a major figure within, um, and his work that really falls in that vein, I think, um, the one that everybody knows, which was, uh, shit, brain, anybody got that off the top of your head? Shit brain, we, yeah, no, that, that was a good shit one. Brain. Yeah, shit brain, yeah, shit brain, y'all should really check out shit brain. Good um, companion no, piece to maggot um, brain, I have to say, speaking his of His second Clinton. major one was We Were Eight Years in Power, but... Um, he's also really famous for an Atlantic article called My President Was Black. If you heard the very first episode, I riffed on that a little bit by saying my president was mixed. Um, Between the World and Me, that's what it's called. Um, mm. Between the World and Me, um, I believe that includes letters to his sons, um, touching on some of the things that we talked about in terms of having the talk um, and Mm. generational trauma in the Americas. Um, But Afro-pessimism tends to, I mean, it is what it sounds like. It tends to see a black future as from a pessimistic point of view and that uh, it's critical of what we might 
describe as progress. Um, and it's not necessarily mutually exclusive with Afrofuturism, because as I've said, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has written for Black Panther. Um, and in some mm. senses, um, like I mentioned earlier, Black Panther is thin on the Afrofuturism because mostly the Afrofuturist aspects of, of Black Panther come from the technology in Wakanda. Mm. And like we said, blackness and technology on their own are not quite enough to make something Afrofuturist. So you could easily have a story about a bunch of black people doing technological stuff that doesn't actually touch on the black experience or black history or the diasporic experience at all. And that would not really be Afrofuturism. Um, I think the one thing that we haven't really touched on enough in this episode so far is the idea of futurism itself. So when we think about futurism, both academically and in fiction, it's the sort of sense of using speculative storytelling or speculative um, research to make intelligent guesses about what kinds of things will happen in the future. And in particular, Afrofuturism is about black futures. So this is why I include people like Beyonce in Afrofuturism, because regardless of whether she's dealing with science fiction or speculative fiction, although you could argue that something like The Lion King is a little speculative or um, some of the other work she's done, but you can see in Lemonade, in um, Black Parade, in Homecoming, that she is embodying some of these same five elements that we've discussed, and she is absolutely concerned with Black feminist futures. She incorporates people like Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie into her music, who, um, if you're familiar with the song Flawless, the uh, there's a break in which she defines feminism. And that voice is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who is a Nigerian-American writer. Um, she doesn't really write speculative fiction, but again, she's concerned with Black futures. She's telling stories about the survival of Black women. Um, and to tie that back into what we were saying about an ontology of survival, uh, we can think about these themes as ways that Black folks, especially Black women, are strategizing on how to survive conditions which we could call trans-apocalyptic. So that's not a reference to transgender people, it's a reference to transitioning. So when we think about apocalyptic literature, it's often post-apocalyptic or pre-apocalyptic. It's either right before the event happens or right after the event happens or a little while after the event happens. Um, in a lot of Afrofuturist literature, the apocalyptic event is happening and it is ongoing. Um, in the to reference back to the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, you the book starts with the end of the world. Um, and you realize the end of the world takes a little bit of time to, to happen. And you have to survive through it, not just after it. Um, it's not just about this thing happened and now we're surviving. It's um, an ongoing problem. And uh, in the 
more academic version of this, the lengthier version of this, I do talk about um, the pandemic uh, and how that represents a trans-apocalyptic moment, especially for Black folks. Um, you can also draw back to um, Jim, uh, well, before the pandemic, there was mass incarceration, before mass in the war on drugs, before that, there was Jim Crow, before that, there was enslavement um, and colonization. So, there's always a sense of black folks living through a trans-apocalyptic moment where there are factors bigger than themselves that are out there trying to destroy black lives. And uh, when you are focused on preserving those black lives, on seeing that those black lives exist in the future, that is a form of Afrofuturism. Uh, and so I part of the work I'm trying to do here is to get us to think about it not only as a genre of media, but as a way of life and a uh, sort of political ideology in that um, it is inherently tied into Black Lives Matter. It is inherently tied into Black trans lives matter, Black women's lives matter, Black queer lives matter, Indigenous lives matter. Uh, all of these ideas about ensuring that we are represented in the future both literally and figuratively um so and i think it's worth noting that after dirty computer um janelle like you were alluding to navarre janelle monet's, monet's work gets a lot more political and a lot more directly confrontational um before that one of her most directly political songs was Mr. President, and I believe it was in reference to George W. Bush at the time. Um, but otherwise, most of her work before Dirty Computer is about storytelling, and the political interventions are allegorical. Um, but post-Dirty Computer, uh, one of the first songs she released after that was Turntables, um, which is a very political song about the last several years of presidential politics and things like that. And it uh, was written specifically for a documentary about Stacey Abrams. And Monet and Abrams had a connection with each other um, during Abrams' campaign for Georgia governor because uh, Janelle Monet is based in Atlanta and she's a Georgia voter. So she was advocating for Stacey Abrams, told Stacey, um, whatever you need from me, I'll do it. And um, that's how that collaboration happened. But you've got that. Oh, I also wanted to reference back um, to, again, this ties between this and Steven Universe. Janelle Monet did a song, at least one song. Um, she might have done other work with them, uh, with Estelle called uh, Do My Thing. And it very much fits in the vein of what we're talking about. It's a great song. Um, and the character that said the line that she quoted was played by Estelle. So the you are an experience, that was a line from Estelle, which suggests to me that maybe she was, you know, vibing with Steven Universe because of her connection to Estelle. So um, I, that's another collaboration I would love to see. Rebecca Sugar, Janelle Monet, make it happen. Um yeah, so I just said a lot there. I would love to hear anything that that brought up for you, too. Uh, and then maybe we'll get to wrapping this episode up. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> I definitely can see, like, now having a broader understanding of it all, 
how a lot of these things can can fit in uh, to place. Because like when I look at it, I like the word that was escaping me until just a few minutes ago was dystopia. Mm. Um, and that's was something that the the short stories evoked was the sense of dystopia. And when I think of like dystopia media, like that was a huge thing a few years back where it was like you had Hunger Games, Maze Runner, um, the other one. Um, but yeah, so basically like a lot of like mm-hmm. young adult fiction that was centered around that and all of it of those ones that I mentioned and could, couldn't mention because I can't remember because I'm <laughs> cursed that way um, is we're centered around white mm-hmm. people. And I think um, in that same vein, like when I would look at that, I would still think of it as like there were futuristic elements, um, even though they were dystopic and they had like a progression towards a hopeful thing. And so now, you know, we're just transitioning that's the center of focus to to black stories. And I think it makes sense how we can tie it into that natural futurism um, mm-hmm. genre there. Yeah, it, it's just like, yeah, I still want more hopeful stories. Yes, and there uh, are. <laughs> they, there definitely are. And I think a lot of uh, yeah. one thing to notice is that a lot of these stories start out in a sort of despairing frame and uh, will transition Mm. to a more hopeful frame by the end um that said it's a little bit harder to do that in a short story so the story that i had you guys read but it does end on a slightly more hopeful note Mm. than uh it starts certainly Mm. the emotion picture has a happier ending so yeah at least more hopeful yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. also by the way (laughs) the emotion picture co-stars tessa thompson so uh you guys should check it out because it's really 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 good yeah she was that was a fun cameo in the uh yeah pink. um she's <laughs> in the whole thing though actually she's plays one of the yeah didn't they didn't they date each other who knows highly questionable it, <laughs> controversially it was uh, <laughs> implied yeah in the in the in the yeah. world of that in the world of Good that them, story guess, yes in real life i don't know i feel like they at least hooked up <laughs> there's the a tea, lot of there's a lot the of tension tea on there. this is that <laughs> the suggestion is that she and Tessa were a not so formal thing for a little while, and then Tessa and Lupita Nyongo became a thing, and that's what I heard. Oh, wow. Can neither confirm de- nor deny that it's true. But you know, hit me up. Let me know what really <laughs> happened. Um, Lupita, if you're listening, let us know. <laughs> oh yeah, Lupita, I I yeah. took a class in in grad school with your cousin, so you know. Lupita's cousin, <laughs> Tavia Niago. Yeah, hit up her cousin. See if, if the cousin knows. <laughs> I'm not gonna. <laughs> but to, interesting turn of events, memory, history, time, historiography, intersectionality, connections. Um, the paper that I wrote that got me into my PhD program was written for Tavia Niango's class at NYU Tisch. And it was about cross-racial cosplay. Nice. And Tavia Niango is related to Lupita Niango. And they are both from Kenya. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's a small world. I think this episode has been a little dirty because we're all dirty computers. <laughs> and uh, I think that I would like to end by recommending a couple more songs. So I made a playlist. 
for this dissertation. And it is on my Spotify, and I am happy to share it with people. But also, I want to list some of the songs. Um, I will also include a playlist that has songs that we discussed during the episodes, which I've already started. But um, this one specifically is something I made a long time ago for me to listen to while I was working on, particularly on this chapter. Uh, it starts with Janelle Monae's Turntables. Um, then Seriously, which is a song written by Sarah Bareilles, performed by Leslie Odom Jr., and it is a speculative piece on what President Obama was thinking at the end of 2016. Um, next is Formation mm-hmm. by Beyonce. Uh, we Are One by Angelique Kidjo, I think is how you say their name. Um, that is from oh, yeah, Angelique Kidjo. Yeah, that is from the Lion King 2 soundtrack. Um, All the Stars by Kendrick Lamar and SZA, which is on the Black Panther soundtrack. Queen by Janelle Monae and Erica Badu. Um, we mentioned that one. Crazy Classic Life, we mentioned that one. Pretty Hurts by Beyonce. Freedom by Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar. Isn't It Love, performed by Estelle and written by Rebecca Sugar. I Like That by Janelle Monae. Soulmate by Lizzo. And then Do My Thing by Estelle and Joan Monae, Janelle Monet. Which, if you're a Steven Universe fan, my headcanon is that in that song, it's Garnet singing with a fusion of Bismuth and Pearl, played by Janelle Monet. Um, if you're a big Steven Universe fan, you'll understand what that means. And if not, that's okay. You should be a Steven Universe fan, though. Alright. Any last words on Afrofuturism, Janelle Monet, uh this dirty dirty episode uh i didn't really get to talk too much about black feminist thought and we will have a follow-up episode which is our discussion section uh linking this back to ttrpgs and uh world building but this is the end of our theory section uh i i was gonna say uh janelle please uh I know that you moved on to other things, but feel free to circle back and finish the Metropolis suite because I'm pretty Hell sure yeah. there's still two parts left. Hell it's yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. Come on I, I very much hope she does that. Um, what became of Cindy? Who knows? Jeremy, I feel like the the radio host on that album would be a perfect role for you. <laughs> I'll I feel take like it. you could do that. <laughs> Especially if, if you've been watching. Uh, Curse of the Spider Queen. I think the radio voice. <laughs> you can hear Thank some you. some aspects of that. Oh, I you know what I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to so far? Maybe this will be a long episode. We did spend twenty minutes just looking for notes. Um I wanted to talk a little bit about um the Wagadu Chronicles. We'll, we can focus it on the cub and the caterpillar to avoid too much spoilers, but oh. where do you see I would consider Wagadu Chronicles to be more Afro-fantasy, but again, since mm-hmm. I consider Afrofuturism to be speculative fiction um, with themes from the Black diaspora, uh, like for in some instances, I have argued before that Steven Universe could be called Afrofuturism, partly because even though it's not super Black, it does deal with enslavement and colonization. Um but I wanted to touch on the Wagadu Chronicles because I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with that. And see, do you feel, as the DM and storyteller, um, if any of these themes came up? And those themes, again, are history, generational trauma, 
empathic community building, self-knowledge and narration, and intersectionality. Uh, comes up way more in the second series, I'll tell you that. Uh, okay. well, first feel series. Free. <laughs> yeah, the first series is. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the Wagadu Chronicles, um, the phrase that I typically say is uh, it's as if uh, J.R.R. Tolkien blessed the rains down in Africa, which is my way of literally saying what Alan Cadicho says, which is that he looked at Lord of the Rings and said, what if J.R.R. Tolkien was Africa, was African and decided rather than trying to create a an English myth, mythos, and uh, if he was like, I want to try and pull from things from all over the continent of Africa and create like some kind of an African fantasy mythos. Uh, and so that's that's kind of the, ba- that's the whole basis for the Wagadu Chronicles setting. Um, it is... Uh, I think in the season one, the cub and the caterpillar, there is definitely a theme of self-knowledge. I think uh, there's also a lot of world knowledge in that season. I think a lot of that season is spent going, oh, let's explore this place and meet the different people that we run into on our journey and see how the world works mechanically uh, in in season two. There is a lot of emphasis on trauma both generational and otherwise there's a huge emphasis on on how your past determines who you are now or, or whether it does uh there's a lot of emphasis there is actually a fair amount of emphasis on uh oppression not a ton but there's definitely some very explicit references to oppression and oppressive acts uh happening and that becomes a central part of the series eventually um and let's see, what are some other things? I think pretty much everything you're saying, except for maybe the speculation aspect of it. If anything, the speculative aspect of the Wagadu setting is, hey, what if African people got to just have like a shared mythos that didn't have uh, European colonialism in it? I and mean, they were just they were it was just it's them. still speculative. <laughs> In that sense, yeah, I guess it, it's it, it it's speculative in the sense that I guess any fiction is speculative. Uh, what if there was a world where this was the case? It's kind of like that. Uh, well, and, I would um, say that any world that includes magic is inherently speculative. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. in that sense, I think most TTRPGs mm-hmm. have a speculative element, um, especially mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons. So. Um, because mm-hmm. it is a module for Dungeons and Dragons, right? Uh, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it was a created originally as a, an MMORPG. And then mm-hmm. I think because Alan really likes TTRPGs and enjoys uh, D&D, I, they specifically were like, oh, let's make it also as like a TTRPG setting as well. So the main focus is ultimately on the MMORPG, which is they just finished the Alpha 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a very successful Kickstarter for it a couple years ago. They just finished the Alpha 2. Looks like a really fun game. Uh, but that is actually based around community building. That game is specifically based around uh, role play and community building and, and character interactions rather than just combat. Um, and that was kind of a theme of... Um, I would say it was a theme, especially at the end of the Cub and the Caterpillar, when it's like, well, we have to defeat this threat, but we can't defeat the threat alone. We have to go out and find other people who can come and help us do this and create a collective force of people. And then afterwards, there's the question of like, okay, how do we then help the people that we freed from oppression uh, to try and like raise, like, how do we rehabilitate these people who have had this traumatic experience? Uh, And then in 
the second series, Curse of the Spider Queen, um, there's still an aspect of like, um, it's I've, at the time we're recording this, I think we've released up through episode nine. And in the backdrop of it all, there's the ongoing political situation where it's like, oh, there's these people who are conquering regions claiming that they're like the heirs to this kingdom. And what are we going to do about this? Uh, or are we going to do anything? Is that just something that we're going to like acknowledge happens and then move on? But like there's the, the question of like how we as a as a as people uh what our level of responsibility or or how we are affected by uh larger world events i think that's probably how i would describe absolutely. it absolutely so i would love to talk about that for another hour but we don't have that <laughs> let's kind have of a time chat after today. the season's finished <laughs> yes we absolutely will um <laughs> Oh, also, that does remind me that we talked about it a little bit um, in my Shirefolk Spotlight episode, where uh, I talked about it in the frame of sort of Marxism and uh, the racial bribe and the idea of people in power um, highlighting differences between groups who would be natural allies. Um, So Mm. the sort of reverse of that is the intersectional empathic community building in which you build community partly on the fact that you have shared struggles and that you know what it feels like to be in those people's shoes. Um, or if we not exactly the same, then at least your experiences with struggle help you to empathize with other people's struggle. Um, and we also talked about that a little bit in the uh, first couple episodes where we were um, brain. We were talking about pol- politics and uh, specifically as it pertains to like uh, U.S. politics uh, mm. and how uh, we, the right. question of like having empathy for your oppressors and whether that in and of itself is a exactly, messed up question exactly, or whether the exactly. encouragement. Yeah, empathy and ter- and also different different definitions of empathy. Like mm-hmm. if you understand where someone is coming from versus like identifying with someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, yeah, with sympathy versus empathy, exactly. Um, the mm-hmm. sort of the difference between saying, "Oh, that sucks. I wouldn't want to be in that situation," and the the empathic version, which is, "Oh, that's really rough." I've been there. This is what it felt like for me. Um, you know, I don't necessarily <clears throat> need to try to solve your problem for you, but I just want you to know that you're not alone. Um, and that kind of thing. And so um, I highly recommend Parable of the Sower. If you haven't read it before, it's really, it's definitely one of the foundational texts from which I was drawing these things. Um, there's so much more to say about Afrofuturism. Maybe we will you know if this series is successful maybe we'll come back and revisit it in the future maybe janelle monet actually will hit me up and then we'll have her as a guest (laughs) and who knows maybe we'll do an actual play show with janelle monet and grace rolick and everything that i want in life all right yeah and brian wilson is there for some reason (laughs) yeah and brian wilson and like hell brennan lee mulligan can come and uh abria abria iyengar you want to want to play a ttrpg with janelle monae i think she would definitely say yes yeah (laughs) i mean if you wouldn't say yes who are you and and why do you hate fun um (laughs) all right (laughs) 
on that note, the let's wrap this shit up. <laughs> this has been your dirtiest of computers, Dr. Jones, and my amazing teaching assistants slash uh, football coach and AV club captain. Uh, football coach? You're the football captain. Nah, He's the, the AV coach. club president. <laughs> gotcha. Here we go. I, you know. Don't. Not every PhD's maybe brain one day, is organized. Maybe one day after I finish, after I'm done with the pros, I'll mm-hmm. come back and coach football here. Just make sure you, you just make sure you do well in your classes, because a lot of I see a lot of football kids going for it, and then they get injured, and then that's the end. That would never and happen. Already to me. spent their millions of dollars on <laughs> video games and Escalades. I've only spent thousands on those things, so I'm definitely on the right track. I want to know where anyway, you got I'm this done. Escalade. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Navarre, say something so people know that you're still here. Ah, uh, I'm here. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, if you... I yeah, sure. Let's do introduction introductions. Is that what's happening? Um, yeah, so yeah, I've been Navarre. Um, I am the creator and host of a secret podcast. You can find me on Twitter at N A V A A R S N P. That's Navarre S N P or the podcast, Twitter at secret NRD social. Come listen to me chat with amazing, amazing people about their individual experiences in teach RPGs and pass it over to, uh, hello, hello, hello. I'm Jeremy Cobb. I'm one third of the podcast Three Black Halflings. Uh, I'm the resident DM and also a co-host. Uh, you're already on this podcast, so you know. Hopefully, you would know that. Uh, yeah, go check out the uh, Wagadu Chronicles, the the setting itself, and and see if the MMO happens to be out by the time we release this. Uh, then go check that, or at least by the time you're hearing it. Uh, and also go check out uh, Curse of the Spider Queen and the Cub and the mm-hmm. Caterpillar if you haven't. Cub and the Caterpillar starts out with really rough audio, uh, but you know it ends up being a Worth good series it. overall for sure. And then uh, yeah, Curse, Curse of the Spider Queen, really cool. It's still mm-hmm. ongoing at the time of this recording i think it's very good um it i hope you enjoy good. it yeah everybody on the discord has been talking about the sports depiction and how awesome it was um <laughs> i am joan the future dr jones also known as rogue senna um you can find me on twitter as the rogue senna you can find me haunting the three black halflings discord and occasionally guesting on Three Black Halflings as one of the 3BH Avengers along with Nafar. Um, and you Avengers. should listen to the rest of this podcast. And also the main Three Black Halflings podcast. <laughs> and um, we love you. Good night! So long, Shire folk. <laughs> so long, Shire folks. That was a HeadGum Podcast.